I came in 75, but 77 Eric came. That has been the leadership of our company for almost 40 years. What company has had the same leadership for that period of time? We were together for that whole time. You get to that point where he's thinking about going left and I've already put the turn signal on. From that point, it was people first. Customers, employees, community, people first. The culture is people. The culture is only in New York. We're a family. We became a culture of mutual respect. There's not a lot of companies that the sales team and the manufacturing team is married as close as our business. It is very unique and very special. In the last 15, 20 years, our brand has really grown. The brand is so well known today. It's been great to be here. It's been a great ride. We're all very blessed and very fortunate and thankful for all we've been able to do and the great people we've been able to have as friends and workers. Since 1975, the singular common denominator on the Cutco leadership team has been Jim Stitt Sr. He and Eric Lane and others risked everything they had to buy the company from Alcoa, and they began building the incredible culture that exists in the company today. By establishing foundational values and implementing the right strategy for success, Jim led Cutco through hyper-growth into becoming the well-known and widely respected brand that it has become. No one can detail the Cutco story more clearly than Jim Stitt. I know you'll enjoy getting to know this amazing leader and learning more about one of North America's greatest organizations. This is the story of Cutco with Jim Stitt Sr. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am very, very honored today to have Mr. Jim Stitt Sr. as our guest for this episode. Uh, Jim is truly one of the most instrumental leaders in the lives of virtually anyone who would be listening to this podcast. If you are a current or former Cutco rep or manager, uh, Jim has been a pillar upon which our organization has been built over the years. He's been with Cutco since 1975. He was a part of the team that bought Cutco from Alcoa circa 1982. He was the vice president of manufacturing for many years during my early days in the business. When we got to visit the Cutco factory, we would get to meet Jim there and hear from him. He became the chief operating officer in 1998 and then the CEO around 2001, ultimately becoming the chairman in 2005. His title now is the executive chairman, which means that he is still has a hand in shaping the future of the company, as I said, a pillar upon which the company is built. I'm to this day, one of the instrumental people shaping the culture of Cutco. So Jim Stitt Sr., thanks so much for making time for the podcast. I am so excited to be here, Dan. It's, it, it's been quite a few years since we spent some time together. What a better way to do it. Yeah, exactly. This is going to be really fun, and I'm grateful for you to uh, be participating in this. I would love for our audience to learn a little bit more about you going all the way back to, you know, before college and before Cutco. Tell us uh, about your personal background. I grew up in uh, Chillicothe, Ohio, Southern Ohio, and I grew up in a small retail family business, plumbing and heating business. 
my grandfather bought the business in 1929, and my dad and my uncles were were there. And that's what I grew up in knowing uh, what small business was and taking care of of customers and taking care of your employees and and product. And so I grew up with a with a love for business. And I know that uh, part of what makes Cutco great, of course, is the product. And it's the service that we give to our customers. And, and I guess I in, indirectly, I, I got this uh, from my dad. It was, uh, I remember uh, back in the days when it would be 7.30 at night and it would be 10 below zero and only in Chillicothe, Ohio. And, and uh, he'd get a phone call and he'd say, well, I got to go out and, and light Mrs. Jones's boiler. You know, and I remember saying, well, why don't you send one of the guys to work for you, dad? And why are you doing this? Well, one is the heating man. He doesn't really, he doesn't have a car, so he has to walk seven blocks down to the shop, get the truck, drive over to the house. It takes five minutes to relight the boiler. So one is why have him go through that? But two is these are my customers. In fact, these a lot of these ladies were high school school teachers of his and grade school teachers, and and he says, you know, when you take care of your customers. These are, I go out, and he never charged him. Whenever he went, he never charged. If he had to send the plumber, the heating man, they, they'd charge. So he didn't charge. And he says, when when the boiler goes down and needs to replace, where do you think they're going to go? Right. You know? And so you take care of them, they take care of you, and everybody takes care of everybody. And that, and that just, just uh, really, really hit home as to uh, it's, it's more about in, it's even being in leadership doesn't mean you don't have to do things. You just get set back and take it easy. You, you get in there and do what everybody does. You know, you participate and and you hop in and, and do some of the dirty work that there's yeah. nothing against that just because you're boss or you own it. Yeah. You and the, work. And, and the culture of exceptional service right there is, that yeah. sounds like something yeah. that came it, out. It, it really was. It was all about people mm-hmm. and people, employees, and customers. So kind of started that way. And so I grew up in, in business. And then uh, actually it was in, and you know, a lot of people just think if you're in business, you're rich. If you're in business, you have control of your destiny. <laughs> Doesn't mm-hmm. mean rich. We weren't wealthy. Uh, we were average middle class. But we vacationed by camping. Mom and my brother and I, we'd go to these campgrounds and we'd do these things. Mom wasn't really excited about sleeping in the tent uh, in the and so it was a point in time when dad started thinking, this was uh, like 1959, 1960s, was looking at camping trailers, which right now are really, <laughs> trailers is a really hot thing right now in camping. Yeah. But to, to look at camping trailers, and it was the fold-up jobs that would fold up and got down, made the small thing, and you pull behind your car. So he had done research, and he had decided that the, the best quality he saw out there was one called the Apache brand. And they, it was by Besley Manufacturing. They were located in Lapeer, Michigan. So we were going to camp up to Lapeer, Michigan from Chillicothe, Ohio. We took off on vacation, camped up there one night and went on into the factory, took a factory tour, bought the trailer that dad, because we didn't have a dealer in there. So we bought the, the trailer that, that he wanted. <laughs> but while we were there, and I'm, he probably had some of his plans before he got there. We came home with a dealership. <laughs> so we buy a trailer. We had the dealership. Entrepreneurial is uh, here's a way to make some extra money. We can have new trailers. This can be extra money to help send kids to college and do some repairs, do some add-ons around the house. So uh, we got into business, started another business. And I worked with my dad on that for about 11 years, but I would do a lot of the repair work. I know my wife will tell you, uh, we dated since we were juniors in high school, got married after I graduated from college. But on a Friday night, uh, a big part of what Friday night was her coming down to the, the trailer shop and watching me put a trailer hitch on and wire the car so that the rental trailer could go out or the one we sold. And then uh, we would go out and have a pizza. And at that point, uh, beverages were legal, 3-2 beer in Ohio. So we went out and had a beverage. And after I put it that on at 9 o'clock, so that was our dates. And she'll remember them well. <laughs> so, but that got me uh, into the love of business and the love of being able to work with business and, and thought at some time that we'd really love to be able to to run a business or to own a business. Cool. So then you went to college, you went to University of Dayton. 
I did. I, I went to the University of Dayton and I majored in mechanical engineering technology. So I had a bachelor's of technology from the University of Dayton and uh, graduated from there in 1971. 1971 was kind of a tough year for a lot of things. One is uh, the technology in- industry was really down. Automotive was down. It was uh, on, on the economy. It was it was not a good year. The second thing was this was still pretty prime Vietnam War. Right. And at that point in time, there still was a draft. And in fact, mm. it was the it was the lottery draft. And by that point, to where you had a lottery number, when I first started going to school, it was uh, you just you got deferments for going to college, and then when you got out, your name went in the pot. Well, then. They, they went into the lottery. I think it was my sophomore year in college. And so my number was not super low, but it was not super high. And so I was clearly in that mix to where if it had followed, 1971 had followed 1970 and 69, I would have been drafted. Hmm. And so as I was looking for jobs, and at that point in time, back then, it was not illegal to say, uh, no, Jim, we can't hire you. You're going to get drafted in two weeks or two months. And then we're going to have to save your job for two years. And we can't do that financially. We just really can't do that. And so I went through that for a month or two. And Carol and I were married then. And I just went back to work for my dad, which I had done from the time about I was about 12. So I went back and I was plumbing. So I was going out and doing work in people's homes, doing the plumbing work. And I did that till uh, through the end of the year. And then I would say, here's one that my mother... Uh, had made some comment to somebody at church who ran the engineering department at wherever aluminum said, you know, my son, could he get an interview with you? And so she, she really got me an interview (laughs) and, and the interview got me a job. And from that, so I, I was working in the, uh, in the engineering department at wherever aluminum as a project engineer, designing, uh, designing new products and such where I was working the process engineering. So I went to work, and uh, actually in February of 1972 then, so once I, I did not get drafted, uh, if I had I got drafted, I would have gone. I decided I wasn't going to enlist at that point, but I wasn't going to go to Canada either. I, I mean, I would do my duty, what was, what was required, but I did not get drafted. So I went to work at wherever in 1972, was there for three years. I remember getting called to the vice president's office, and he says, I want to send you to Olean, New York. And I had no clue where where only in New York was. But, <laughs> and all I heard was New York. So, I mean, in my mind, if you're not from, if you're not from New York, you really think there's only one place in New York and it's New York city, <laughs> but uh, only is 400 miles from New York city. So we talked about that when I got home, I went home to Carol. And I said, you better sit down. And she goes, well, you've either been fired or you, or you've been transferred. And I said, well, I wasn't fired. So where are we going? And I said, uh, only in New York. And she says, where's that? And I said, I said, well, St. Bonaventure's there. And she goes, well, that's where Bob Lanier played. <laughs> and you've, you've met Carol, and you know enough, she's a sports fan. So she, she knew that. So uh, we came to Olean, New York uh, uh, in that transfer when a lot were getting cut back. And it was, uh, the, the goal was that at that point, the, uh, the plant was only running at about 30, 35% capacity. And what I was sent here for was, could I help uh, design new products and get business other than cutco could i get some private label business could we build the volume of the factory with with non-cutco product private label business and so that was my goal when i came here and that's what i i worked with in 19 april 1st 1975 and did that for uh, quite a few years and and then eric came in 1977 so uh, he wasn't there when i came in 75 i was actually here longer than eric lane but uh, so I, I came here as an engineer to wow to wow. build business, to build business. So what was the story of Cutco from before you got there? Tell us a little bit about the history. Well, it was, it was uh, started in 1949, and uh, wherever aluminum was a cookware, pots and pans business, and they were located in Chillicothe, Ohio. And back in the early 40s, early 40s, uh, the uh, wherever was saying, we need, what could we sell besides pots and pans in mm-hmm. our direct sales business? What could we sell? And the, uh, the search had come on and said, it ought to be knives, cutlery. And so they had come here and had uh, had conversations with Case Cutlery, which is right. located in Bradford, Pennsylvania. And Case is probably one of the oldest cutlery companies in the country. And it was family owned. And they had talked to Case about making some knives for them. And what became clear was this Cutco business could grow big enough 
the case couldn't do the volume of two different businesses in their factory. So at that, they found this empty plant site. There was a actually a, a, a found or a, a leather works here back in the 30s. It burnt down, and they found this piece of property. And Alcoa says, "We'll buy the plant." case you be partners with us you show us how to make knives and you run the plant and we'll own the plant and so it was a 51 49 percent uh, ownership alcoa to case and they started this business and built this factory which opened in 1949 under the name of alcas right alcas which is alcoa case got it and that's, uh, so when i came here in 1975 this this company it was alcas Right. Back when you came here in 1988, it was still Alcas Corporation. It was. And so that is partnership with Case, who was the renowned, looked at as the best, highest quality manufacturer of cutlery in the United States, is to, of course, that we got to partner with them. And as such, then they started this business to where they were making knives. And I think originally they thought that, that the same salesperson would sell knives and pots and pans but then when it kicked off it actually became two separate businesses there was the cutco knife section mm -hmm. and, and by the way the product outcast made a product called cutco and the pots and pans people were still selling pots and pans and it remained that way for quite a few years up into the 70s to when they started to merge the thing together the knives and then what occurred was that the knife the business became the predominant direct sales business and the uh, president here at the time, Eric Klein, had made the case to uh, to Alcoa in Pittsburgh that we should own Cutco, Alcas should own the Cutco product and the Cutco sales. Hmm. And it had become kind of a a stepchild to uh, to wherever at that point. They still were controlling. They didn't want to let loose of it, but they weren't they weren't building the business. They weren't growing the business. Right here, we had this factory. Uh, we didn't have enough people working here. We'd like to have work here. We need more capacity. We need to grow it. And so in uh, January of 1981, we took over the ownership of the Cutco product as as being marketed. So that was by Alcast now and only. And so that happened in, in 81. So it was a big step leap there to actually make this a full-fledged business. Because prior to that time, all we did was make product for wherever, the Cutco product, put it in the warehouse, the time we put it in our warehouse here, it belonged to wherever. And then we counted on them to sell it. Right. And tell us when to make more. So that, that all took place then, which was a very critical part is where we took over the total business portion of the Cutco business. Because in 81, what happened was we shifted the marketing and sales and operations to, to only in New York. And then it became in early 82, Alcoa had begun working through, they owned a lot of different companies that were not tied to making aluminum, just making an aluminum sheet. And cash had become very tight at that point in time and, the, and for all kinds of businesses. So what they were looking at is doing, who could we sell that really doesn't have anything to do with making uh, aluminum and, and creating new high-tech versions of aluminum, aircraft grades and that. So they were selling businesses and wherever they found a buyer for wherever in june of 1982 and the company it was a it was a venture capital group that bought them but they did not want the knife business and so with that uh eric uh, lane had uh, some good contacts in pittsburgh and between his conversation with them and they were saying why don't you guys buy this management team there why don't you buy the company you know that we let's take a look at whether that could work and so they worked through that for two or three months and uh, came to the uh, agreement with Alcoa that says, okay, we'll, we'll sell this business to you. And that was done in September of 1982. So four months after wherever was sold, then Alcas Cutco, which was only a $6 million business at that time, bought by a group of five of us, Eric Lane, myself, Bob Lorenz, Dave Curtis, and Ray Kohler. So it was yeah. five, five owners at that point that did that in 1982. And at wow. that point in time, we were still predominantly private label. You know, I told you I came here to try to build private label. Well, myself and, and others here, we we did a pretty good job at it. And sixty-five percent of our volume was private label. It was not it was not cutco product. 
But that's not a great business to be in, is making private label, because again, you don't control your destiny when you make stuff for other people. They control how they're going to market and sell it. You just got to hope they do. It was taken as to task at times. And right after we bought the company, Corning, Corning Glass, which at that time was big in the, they made a whole uh, cookware and tableware, Corelware. They had decided, same thing like when I talked about back in wherever, back in the early 40s, what could we do besides pots and pans? Well, Corning was saying, what could we do besides glassware? And they had come to knives, cutlery. And they had actually been working with a company in Japan. And they, uh, they came to us and said, hey, uh, you know, we're, we're doing this. Would you, is this anything you could do? And this was right shortly, after, not, not long after we bought the company. And so we were looking for volume. And so, yeah, and, and they, their goal was they were going to have 20% of the mass market, 20% of the total mass market of cutlery, which is, is a phenomenal number. Wow. And so that's more said, than yeah, we have. That's more than that, we have. Right? That's more than we have because this was not, not high priced. It was modest priced, but more volume, more pieces. And so we did the work to go through and, and quote it and do all the things and meet their standards. And so they said, okay, we're going to do this. And they went into what they were calling a test phase. And they set us all up and they were doing a test marketing and sales. And, and we started making these two different product lines. There was uh, six knives in each line. And we had bought, truth is, we bought more equipment. We bought almost as much equipment for that project as we paid for the company at the time to do the transaction. So we almost doubled our, you know, we leveraged ourselves double got into it, and we were running hundreds of thousands of pieces for them in this test and, and working through it and learning how to do it. And it's like uh, two years into the test, we get a call from them and they say, uh, hey, we changed our mind. We're not going to do it. Hmm. And wow. this was a really come to day is that, you know, that and what that was, it said private label cannot be a business. Private label cannot be a business. We are Cutco. We right. are Cutco. Exactly. And so we looked at it and says uh, how we would do that. And a couple of choices were made. You know, one was, you know, we could go and chase low end with business, or we could stay with Cutco and chase high end. Our decision was we have to stay high end, high quality, high price, because somewhere in the world will continue to chase and beat your pants off. If you work to the lower end or even to the middle, the race and to so the that's bottom. When we made that decision that we were going to race at the top, which had minimal participants, but that's who we really were, though. We knew that's who we were. And in fact, we knew we would have a hard time trying to get our employees here to say, you got to start making product that's more for the bottom. Because that's not how they're used to making cut quality. I mean, we'd have trouble getting them to to make product and pass it, you know, they, they were rejecting stuff. So we made that decision and then said, we've got to get in bigger. At that point in time, we were selling, we were manufacturing, selling to about 125 different Cutco organizations across the United States, all individually owned by in different people. And some were wanting to grow. Some really didn't want to grow. They've been in business a long time. They were comfortable with the amount of business they had, but we were dying. In fact, when, when Corning told us they were going to leave, we still had not made any money since 1982. And we borrowed money from the Bank of New York, which had an office here in, in Olean. And it was set up as a 15-year mortgage, but it was a three-year renewal call. And we hadn't made any money clear into the second year. And the Bank of New York was moving out of Western New York and moving to the East Coast. And they just said, uh, hey, we're going to call our mortgage at the end of the third year and we had made money and so we started scrambling for a bank and uh, talked to a lot of different ones at that point our, our cpa was a man named fran Wienog. he he made contact with with a couple guys that were running a commercial banking office out of rochester new york for the bank or connecticut national bank and uh, made a contact with them we had several meetings and they came down and said if you guys can Meet your pro forma in 1984, and we'll take on your, your line. We'll give you a line, and then you keep that going. We'll take on your mortgage. And so, uh, and we had talked to a bunch of banks. It was getting down to the, 
nitty gritty to where we were. Well, if the bank would fold, we'd have fine when we would we would have gone bankrupt. We would have ended. And in fact, Bank of New York, I spent time in here with a closeout person from the bank going around looking at equipment. He was inventory equipment. So he, they were getting ready to, you know, what could they do with this? So uh, with that, I said, we got to grow this Cutco business. We got to get back to where wherever it was in 1977, 78, because wherever had everybody working for them. And then they turned everybody loose and set them all up as independents. And so now we're trying to, what we know is we've got to recreate what wherever had. You need to control the group and have a unified national program. Right. And so we went to Buffalo, hired a person from the newspaper to come in and start a Cutco office. And there hadn't been an office in Buffalo for years, believe us or not. Here we are at Cutco. We're, in, we're 70 miles from Buffalo, and we never sold product in Buffalo for years. <laughs> so we got it going. He did well. Actually, a few years later, he actually you know, it was the top office in the country there. But so we're, we're going down that road, but it was going to be a tough road to keep going to every city and trying to do what we did in Buffalo, but we knew we could do it. The other was, could we buy the biggest, the biggest customer we had out there, which was a man called, uh, the, the owner was Don Frieda and the company was Vector Marketing. Yeah. And so we, we talked with Don for about six to nine months about, Here's what we really both need to do for the good of the company, because if we don't do something like this, neither one of us might not be around. So we need to we need to merge, get together and grow. So uh, we did do that in 1985. Uh, Don Frieda Vector joined us. And I think at that point in time, we had about, I think, 13 offices or something like that. And it was yep. on the northeast. And then from there, we said, OK, now we got the we got some of the northeast covered. But what about the central United States and what about the West Coast? Yep. And so the first move we made is talking with, with Don Muellrath, who owns CWE, with the name of his company, in California. And we put that deal together. And so we had Don Muellrath. So we had the East and the West Coast covered. And then we talked to Marty Dimitrovich in Chicago, company Breckmar, and we bought them. And so what we had is we, we virtually had the United States kind of covered from three major places. Right. And we went from 13 offices to 26 offices and started, started building offices. And that's really, uh, that was the beginning of the beginning. That was yeah. it. That was yeah. the restart. That was the restart. That was the pivot. Let's go forward. And, uh, and some exciting things. Yeah. And then at that time, a lot of success started happening uh, in, in the 90s and the 2000s. I wanted to back up for a second to ask about, so you came in in 1975, Eric Lane came in in 1977, and the seeds of the culture of the company that we know today began being sown there in those early days. I know that when you went through the buyout, there was a critical period where, as you said, you had to hit your pro forma, you had to hit a specific goal by the end of 1984, and a lot of the people in the factory kind of rallied to help make that happen. There was a lot of good seeds already present even before the growth of the company started to, to manifest. How did you and Eric in particular shape the culture of the company in those, in those early days? When I came with, I told you the story about just my dad and the business and the customers and the relationships. And, and Eric clearly came in with, with a lot of that thinking and the people. And this, unfortunately, was a company that was ridden with strikes. We are union. We're steelworkers. And there was a strike in uh, 1969. There was a strike in 1972. There was a strike in 1975. I came here in 75 in April and went through a strike in September, a six-week strike. I left wherever. Uh, it, Twelve months before that, I went through a six-week strike at wherever. So I mean, so I was in. It was this culture of that stunk, right? <laughs> Just to put it, you know. And Eric came, and uh, in '77, we went into negotiations of '78, and clearly, it, the thing was, you know, we got to work together. We all have to win. There can't be a loser in a negotiation. There's got to be all winners. And and went at the negotiation that way in 1978. We did not have a strike in 1978. 
we had a very favorable, positive vote to work and come back. And we have never had another strike since 1975. So one just put it that. So here was a work climate that we had good people, but management and the people were, it was oil and water at times. I mean, we love, they love what they did. They love Funko product, but there wasn't a lot of trust either way, you know, and, and, and didn't really know each other. And when Eric came and clearly what it was is what we need to do is we need to know each other. And he spent a lot of time out in that factory floor. I spent most of my time on the factory floor, floor as manufacturing manager and even having meetings. If we're going to have a meeting, let's go have it in the, in the aisleway out there with a few guys and, and do that. But get to know people. And before before I started to lose people's names and when I became 70, but I, I knew everybody on that floor. And I knew most of their kids' names and, and wives' names. And and we got to know people. And it's and you know, we're we're a family. Culture was family, you know, where it's just not we're the owners or and we're here and you're the workers and you go do your thing and, and it was no, we all come here and we all do what it takes to do to be winners. And and so it was from that point it was people first. Customers, employees, community, people first. Mm-hmm. Big thing out there was, and people first, the product was always going to be on top. Right. So people weren't going to let the product get away. They were they were tied to this Cutco product. But it was that it was that culture of of the people and just getting to know people and and doing what was needed for them. And you you take care of people, they take care of you. You know, you you do things for them. And the key is mutual respect. And we became a culture of mutual respect. You know, again, it can't be winners and losers. You got to respect each other, and that's what makes life go on. And that's that started in in late seventy seven, seventy eight, seventy nine. We just continued to build on that. And then we talked earlier about you know the buyout nineteen eighty two. Now, prior to that, some of our I will say that some of the labor problems even was we were owned by Alcoa. So at that point in time, big numbers back then. I think Alcoa was three or four billion dollar company. As I told you, we were less than six million. So, you know, we were a fly speck on, you know, the, the, we were something they could forget about in about two seconds. And and so, but the people constantly look, you know, we weren't making money as this little manufacturing company, this piece of it, or not making enough. All they saw was, well, you belong to Alcoa and they're big. They'll take care of you. Well, of course, that's not the way business works. You got to take care of yourself and then they take care of you. Right. So when we bought the company in 82, that all changed. You know, there wasn't Uncle Al anymore. <laughs> You know, it's what right. we call the alcohol. It was, it was Uncle Bank of New York, and they owned this. You know, we got to make those payments, and we got to do these things. And the ownership, it's here. It's us guys. There is no, there is no alcohol out. They're going to bail us out. We either make it or break it on our own. And that was a big moment in our all culture. Also, is that you know when you take away that outside influence, or that outside thinking protection, it's us. You had the sales team. And they're out there doing their thing, you know, and don't and leave us don't don't come around. And you had the manufacturing team, and both didn't know or appreciate each other, mm-hmm. understand each other. And that changed here also is you know how many times we brought people from the field in, uh, is so we could get to know them, and they could get to know us. Our people on that floor could get to know you. You know, when you walk through that plant, how many people want to know how they could help you? What they knew was that. The business doesn't go anywhere. You can have the best product in the world, which they knew they had, but if you can't sell it, you got nothing. And the salespeople coming through this plant know that we're great salespeople, but if you let that product slip, you let that quality slip, you don't make deliveries, we're out of business. And so it was a, it was a really mutual respect that was built there, and we just continued to build on that to where there's not a lot of companies that I think that the sales team and the manufacturing team is married as close as our business. Yeah, it is very unique and very special. Yeah, that is a cool part of uh, of how we operate. And I, I really like what you said about just getting to know each other is what led to the kind of cohesive relationships between management and the factory employees, and that you spent time on the floor that you and Eric would both be down on the factory floor talking to people, getting to know people. I know I know. in the times I've been to Olean that that's one of the things that people describe about, about you guys that they really have appreciated is that, that interest 
that is shown. And it just conveys the feeling that we do want everyone to win, right? As you said, there mm-hmm. can't be losers in a negotiation. It has to be a, a win-win type of situation. And that's not always easy when the company is trying to negotiate a deal that creates the highest opportunity for you know profit and revenue. And the workers want to you know earn as much as they can. And there has to be that, that balance. And somehow because of the relationships that you and Eric built with so many people in the, in the company, you, you've been able to strike that balance really, really well, which is, which is cool. You use the word family to describe our culture. You also said when thinking about which avenue you wanted to go to in terms of, you know, the, uh, what products to produce that quality, right? The high end, that's who we are. When I think about the Cutco culture, I think about these words, family and quality. What else comes to mind if I make the statement that Cutco culture is, right? What other words would you use to, to finish that statement? Love, appreciation, respect, thankful. I mean, everybody's thankful for what each other was do for each other. They're thankful that they're here. I mean, we are a small rural community, 14,000 people and only in New York. We employ over 700. We've been as high as at times in the summertime, we get up eight or 900 employees. 14,000 people in the community, a rural, 70 miles close to the biggest city is Buffalo. So we are pretty important. Now, we don't take that for granted. We take it as a responsibility. And to the people, they know that. As we, you know, we all, as a family, our employees, the owners, we're all responsible to this community and to our customers. I mean, we got to do good work and do it on time to protect all those millions of customers that we've had since 1949. We have these people that live in this community. Well, Cutco is pretty doggone important to be here, but so is everything in town, but we're important, you know? And so, and we carry that, that responsibility, really we carry it strongly, it's big, and that we need to play our part. It's a social responsibility. So I get to it is that so many companies, uh, unfortunately, uh, decide, well, we could make more money going somewhere else. We could make the product over offshore and we'll just close the place and leave. You know, we, we, we gave you a good 20 years while we were here, you know. Well, I don't think that's socially responsible. I think social responsibility is we, we do owe it to the stakeholders. Uh, certainly shareholders, you know, the public basically the business books that tell you that it's, it's shareholder responsibility. Uh, we call it stakeholder responsibility. We're we're responsible to the employees. We're responsible to the community. We're responsible to our customers. And you do all those things right, and you got to make some money or you can't do those things. But money isn't the end all. Money helps, but you have to do those other things. And so it's it's being being socially responsible, and that's really our our goal and our mission. Here is to is to do that here in only in New York and maintain that responsibility and help the community grow. So it become it grows with us and becomes stronger. And it can't we just don't want it deteriorating and Cutco sitting out here in the middle of a of a cornfield all of a sudden. Uh, that uh, we need it to be a, a thriving community, but more and more communities up there around it. They got companies that can can do what Cutco's trying to do, and that's fueled by the vector of our salespeople that. They got to sell the product so people here can keep making product, and and the people here have to keep making good product so more and more people can sell and make careers in the vector business. Yeah, it's, it's a really us. Yeah, everything and, is us. And the the ripple effect of that leadership is something that is profound. I mean, you think about the number of sales reps that come through Vector and what they have a chance to learn and do because you're out there in Olean you know, making this great product and leading uh, and owning the sales arm and leading everything from one spot, it just creates opportunities for thousands and thousands of young people every year to to go through this program and to get exposed to the ideas that you shared. Because even though not every young Cutco rep gets to meet you, they get to meet their manager who they work directly with their manager who has met you and has talked to you and has talked to Jim Jr. And to the other, you know, key executives, and the 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 ways, uh, your ways of operating, your ways of being, are being spread out to so many other people, and it's uh, it's cool to see to see that happening. What do you think contributed to the rapid growth of the company in the '90s and 2000s? I mean, it was a great stretch. Well, it was it was really as I talked about back when 
we made the decisions to to buy Vector, and we had these few offices, and I, I can't tell you the exact, but I mean, I think it started like it, it was 13, it went 26, went to 56, went to 75, went to 85, it, to the point where, you know, with branches, we had 700 offices. Yep. And so it was really building the company that would allow opportunities to be spread nationwide mm-hmm. is really what it came down to. It was getting that opportunity out there. That's a lot of what this business is all about, too, is it's creating people, whether you want to own your own business someday or you want to be an entrepreneur to own your own job someday, that what you do for somewhere else, entrepreneurism is owning what you do, not just showing up, putting eight hours in, going home. It's, and it's a feeling. And, and that's, that's clearly in spades and all our managers out there and, and what they learn. And, and that's how we all work together. That's the real spirit that really binds this company together. It's that spirit and what we can do. I think it's going to be more important than ever with what we're going through and, and the world and, and the COVID and all those things right now is that the ability to be able to have an opportunity to own some of your own destiny or know how you could. Mm-hmm. That's what you can learn in the in the Cutco business and, and and the vector business is to how you could be in business for yourself if you wanted to someday. What is your fallback? I can do my own thing versus well the business is closed up or the closed shop and not having anybody work there anymore. But you can do it on your own. And it's gonna become bigger and bigger. I mean it's just I think entrepreneurism it's growing in the schools as subjects and uh, and centers, entrepreneur centers and colleges and the business schools and engineering schools. We're way ahead of the game. We've been doing that for a long time. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so we're, we're, the, uh, we're the classroom. Yeah, I, I like what you said about building a company that allows opportunities to be spread, right? You, you helped create a structure for Cutco and Vector that would enable people to, you know, have their own sales team. Right. Or nowadays, even our, our career sales reps, right, have exactly. a little mini team of people that help them in some cases. And, and so building this environment that allowed opportunities to, to be spread, creating entrepreneurs who own what they do. And that's what I was excited about as I graduated from college in 1992. And I looked at, you know, what my opportunities were. I saw a chance here to be able to own what I do. Right. And to build something and to have my income reflect my own skill level and my own effort directly and quickly. All right. You know, not, uh, not some place where somebody else was going to decide what I was going to earn or anything like that. And it was always exciting to see that. And I think so many quality people saw that throughout the nineties and the early two thousands. And as you said, we've grown from. You know, very few offices and pretty small. I think we did 28 million in sales the year I started in 1988. Yeah, or 26, yeah. something like that. And uh, and you know, from there to to where we are today, it's been from, been an awesome uh, ride. 1998 or 99 to 2004, and it really was a couple year period. And we doubled the business in a, in a very short span. Doubled the business, which was exciting, but it was also horrific from trying to be able to produce the product and get it out and deliveries. But it was it was a huge growth area in there, what we were able to do. I don't think there was a, a city over 30,000, maybe even less than that, in the in the United States that didn't have a vector office then. You know, I mean, we, we got, and there was a time when we probably couldn't have had 100 across the whole United States. You know, so right. that's, it's really that growth. And it, and it say, gets it out there to where, uh, everybody had the opportunity to be exposed to what Cutco was and the opportunity to join and to grow inside. As we like to say, as you know, when you're in the Vector Cutco business, uh, you're in business for yourself, but you're not in business by yourself. Yes. And that's where, and that's where we've always been to be, be the help and, and, and all ways of our business. And it's just a very big plus that's, uh, that's helped us grow also. Yeah, exactly. And o- over all these years, you had a great, partnership with Eric Lane from the time he arrived all the way uh, until uh, not too long ago, in fact. Right. Can you speak a little bit about uh, yeah, your partnership I, I, with Eric? I can. And it's very unique. You really just don't find too many cases to where somebody works together from 1977 to 
his retirement in 2006. I mean, we were together for that whole time. I mean, it was, you get to that point where, you know, he's thinking about going left and I've already put the turn signal on, you know, and the, the, how we could think how the other was thinking, how we could answer the sentences for him and work together. Because a lot of partnerships, you know, you get a few years and somebody gets mad at the other one or something doesn't go the way you want, but it, it was a, it was a marriage made in heaven. And I still scratch my head trying to understand, well, why do you like me? <laughs> and, you know, part of the success, I think, is, is also, when you think about it, so 77, I came in 75, but 77, Eric came, and I started moving into management a few years after that. Uh, but that has been the leadership of our company for almost 40 years. Now, especially manufacturing companies, well, companies in general, what company has had the same leadership for that period of time? And, and a lot of factories, you find a lot of companies have factories and, and what they do is these for, they use them for training grounds for management trainees. So all of a sudden we got, you know, a couple down the, down the road here. Every two years, the general manager changes. Mm-hmm. Well, how do people ever really understand what the culture is or who you are or do I trust you? You know, people come in and say, hey, trust me, I'm, I'm from headquarters and I'm here to help you. Well, Give me about three years and let me see what you do, and then I'll tell you. Right. Well, I think, you know, again, so what we've had, you know, whether they liked our answers or didn't like our answers when, when the people would ask questions, but they knew they had the answer from the top. And, in fact, when we did union negotiations, we didn't have outsiders come in and negotiate. I mean, the, the president, the CEO of the company was in the room. So it isn't, well, I don't know. Let me go back and talk to them and see if they can do that. It's, hey, we're here, and we're saying no. You know, we can't do that, but we could do this. Or what do you really need? And so it was just, I mean, it was just, in a, it was an amazing relationship. And when when he did retire, I mean, I know I remember speaking that it was at the Christmas party that I said, you know, I really, uh, I'm a very fortunate individual. I said, I had a great dad that I learned a lot from and learned how to work and how to run business. I had two dads. Eric mm-hmm. was my second father. Wow. You know, and it really... Now, he's 15 years older than me, so he's not quite, old, but, you know, it wasn't like we were close in age, but pretty close. But it was. It just seemed like that. It did. I, I had such a great opportunity to have two great mentors, and I had some others, but none at that long between my dad and Eric, just a mentor as to how uh, I was able to develop myself and help develop a business. But just a unbelievable relationship that we had. And it went from business to social to travel. You know, we traveled on, uh, we traveled with the lanes, Eric, Marianne, and Carol and I, and we, we did a lot of things with you on some of these trips. I mean, we just, we had good time traveling together too. You know, we just, we enjoyed each other. We appreciated each other. Uh, and we worked together hard to reward the other, you know, to, and to make, we want, we respect each other. So we want to do a good job for them. Yeah. And it was just, it was great. Yeah. That's so cool to hear. Thanks for sharing that. And so now uh, your son, Jim, is leading the company. What do you think are his greatest strengths? He had the greatest mother in the world. (laughs) She did a wonderful job. Now, Jim is a very thoughtful person. His degree is a bachelor's in mechanical engineering technology also. And from the University of Dayton, by the way. Go Flyers. like the flyers. So he has a, he also has an engineering background. And I'd like to say that an engineering background helps your whole thought problem solving process. He's great at that. But he's a thinker. He thinks through uh, decisions. Uh, he's committed to the people. He's committed to the community, the field. He's, uh, he's detailed. He's a people person. He's a people person. And he's, he's strategic, much better than me. I mean, he really wants to tie his strategy down, think through it, work through it. I probably uh, go off a whole lot faster, but he just got, he's uh, picked a, an awful lot of great things up and through all the years. And of course, as he'll tell you, uh, when did you get to know Cutco? Well, he came here when we moved to Oli and Jimmy was two years old. My son, John, uh, was born here. He was born on the 4th of July in 1976. So Jimmy says, I grew up knowing Cutco. He was at the dinner table. He was, I mean, it was the discussion was Cutco. And he'd go to the family picnics every year and he'd go to these parties. And so he just kind of indirectly knew Cutco. And it was then after college, 
that uh, where he said, well, I think I think I'd like to go home. I like Olean. I'd like to go back to the company, and and I was glad to have that, and proud to have that, and proud of him, uh, and also John that came back and joined the company, but that uh, we were able to do that and what he learned, and bought the culture, and I will say that about both my sons, who are. Uh, ultimately going to be, I mean, they're both owners now, but in running the business, but it's the culture is people. The culture is only in New York. The culture is staying here. The culture is making it go, helping the community grow. They're all into that. As I say, you know, you can hire some smart people to run different business activities, but it's very hard to hire somebody with culture that you want, especially ours. I think it's, it is a little unique. That you know, you can even people can say, "I get it, I get it, I'll do it, I'll do it," but then they really don't. If they didn't grow it, you don't believe it, you don't bleed it. It's tough. So I think the most, some of the most important things he has is he he knows the culture. He's lived the culture for forty forty some years, and and he wants to build on that culture. And that's our success is that culture that we have here and that we have in the field and we have with the product we have with our customers. Yeah, I would definitely echo what you just said in terms of my interactions uh, with Jim and his, the way that he's operated, that uh, he, he truly does live the culture that has been established here. The, the, the feel, the family feel of Vector and Cutco has not skipped a beat in my entire career, uh, whether it was under Eric's, you know, leadership as the CEO or yours, or now Jim Jr. It's the feel has always been great and amazing. And it, you just, you feel like you're a part of something special. And I think that's a big part of why so many of our leaders have stuck around for so long in the company. No, I totally agree. It's very important. Once you get past the early stages, you really think deep. That's really what's important to people. Yeah, indeed. Really indeed. Yeah. Well, Hey, as you look uh, into the future, Jim, what, uh, what's most exciting to you? Well, I, uh, going to play a little more golf. <laughs> no, well, yeah, I will. That's Actually, in the, last, in the last five months, you know, we have a home in, in Hilton Head, South Carolina. We spend the winters. So for the last 10 weeks, I was playing golf five days a week, and I never thought I could play five days a week. And I don't know I ever want to again, but there wasn't anything else to do. And I live on a golf course, so it was just easy to go out in the COVID, and you could do that. But It's a great pandemic activity. <laughs> it, we were, were very blessed. Uh, Carol and I, and uh, we're very blessed of what our opportunities have brought us, what we're able to do, and to have and to be able to go spend it in Hilton Head, so that we could do that. But it was a great place to spend the winter when the weather was, you know, it was nice weather. You get out and walk, you could play golf. But it's the, you know, I think it's uh, what I would have said about some of this maybe uh, six or seven months ago. But this this answer, I think, what's really exciting is just what I've seen occur in 2020 due to the COVID is mm-hmm. uh, you know, as to what, what has come about, but just seeing the pivots that were made and we know we've always had some, but just so quickly, but to see how we can take this new horizon to the future, what, what our business is today and how we build on what we jumped into overnight. As you say, our division managers, our region managers, our two executive teams everywhere, I mean, everybody does a fantastic job of how to do this and do it quickly and do it well, even down to the the factory where the factory had to be shut for 10 weeks here in New York and now trying to play catch up to get product built and the supply chain. But everybody just made great decisions. But to think about what we've learned in this last six months, seven months, of what happens when we really know how to do that Mm -hmm. is exciting. Uh, we got a product, the brand has grown like crazy, uh, which is part of what I think also makes it exciting is what's happened in this last year was that in the last 15, 20 years, our brand has really grown. Mm-hmm. I mean, even think of, you know, selling and those samples. And well, the reason is the brand is so well known today. It isn't like, well, I don't know what Cutco is. You better show me one. You right. Know? And so when you think about what that is, what can that be now? Look at the stars. I mean, just think of what we, the pieces we've learned right here. Now, where do we take that? That's what's exciting for you yes. guys. <laughs> you know, I'll be sitting out in the sand somewhere, but uh, <laughs> you guys are going to have, you guys are going to have a lot of fun and a lot of excitement 
uh, Bruce and Al and the whole Vector team and the Cutco Olean team. It's just exciting what the opportunities are here with this with this business that back in 1985, 84, 85, we were trying to decide, should we stay in Cutco or should we do something else? You know? Yeah. And we pivot and say, it's Cutco. We will live with Cutco and we are living with Cutco. Yes. We're, we're prospering with Cutco. And we're the, yeah. we're the last one on the block. It's, you know, in the U.S., as you say, it, everybody else kind of died in the vine trying to chase the other end. And the, and the great direct sales business, I mean, we are direct sellers. And that's the other thing I think it's committed to in our culture. We're direct sales. Mm-hmm. We're committed to that. It's a great business. It's a great way to do things. And to create, say, to create these young entrepreneurs, whether you're a salesperson or you want to be manager or whatever you want to do. This is an entrepreneurial business. It's, it's exciting. It is. It is. Well, Jim, you brought your family values that you learned from your, you know, parents and grandparents. Uh, you brought that spirit to the company. Uh, you took a huge risk in the years of the, the buyout from Alcoa. Uh, you forged great relationships with people uh, in the factory. Forged an amazing relationship with Eric Lane as the, the real pillars of the organization for so many years. Developed and coached and counseled Jim Jr. to be able to take over as the CEO in ways that are, uh, you did great work there as well. You must be so proud to see that. You are the singular common denominator in Cutco since 1975 that has been truly instrumental in in uh, building the organization to to what it is today, and when I look back on you know my years in the company, of course I've been tremendously impacted by people like Don Mulrath and Bruce Goodman and Filippo Mancini and Don Frieda and Eric Lane. Of course, you you are right there in the pantheon of all the great and most instrumental leaders that uh, I've had in my life, and so I really appreciate you for all you've done grateful for you to be able to share a little bit of your your story and the Cutco story here today. And I just want to thank you for making time to be a part of the podcast. It's been great to be here. It's been a great ride. As I say, we're all very blessed and very fortunate and just uh, thankful for all we've been able to do and the great people we've been able to have as friends and workers. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I hope to see you in person yes. at some point in the not too distant Me future. Too. Yeah. Yep. Grateful for this time today. Take care, my friend. Thank you. All right. I hope you all liked hearing from Mr. Jim Stitt. I found it really cool to hear how the seeds of the Cutco culture were born out of some of Jim's experiences in his family business and things he learned from his parents and his grandparents. That was really insightful. I thought that was cool. How Jim and Eric worked to get to know people in the factory, on the floor, at all levels in the company when they were in charge and began building that family environment, the aspect of stakeholder responsibility that Jim shared, that it's not just about shareholder value with Cutco because the company is family-owned, because the buck does stop in Olean at the desk of the executives, that uh, they can have stakeholder responsibility as a primary objective. They built a company that allowed opportunities to spread by taking control of the marketing side, the sales side, as well as the manufacturing side, and a company that put people first. Uh, You really could hear a lot about that concept and that insight in the episode with Jim Stitt Jr. That is episode number 39 on the podcast. Please check that one out next if you haven't already. And it's cool to know that uh, Jim Jr., our current CEO, has taken, followed in his father's footsteps and lives our culture. Those words that Jim Sr. described about the culture today, quality, family, love, appreciation, respect, gratitude, social responsibility, all elements of the Cutco culture that uh, have been formed largely under the leadership of Jim Stitt Sr. 
over these many years. Just an incredible leader and mentor to have in my life. And I'm grateful for him participating here in this podcast. Hope you enjoyed getting to know him a little bit today as well. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.